Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell. We have a lot to talk about this week, and none of it will be the ACC preview that you are probably expecting. We apologize for the interruption in our 2020 season previews. But we've had a lot of news this week, and because seasons have been pushed back and conferences are announcing bigger plans as to what they're actually going to be doing with their schedules, we're going to put things a bit on pause because we've had some interesting developments around the college football world. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit broadly in this first segment just about everything that's gone down since in terms of what conferences have decided to do. In the second segment, we'll be talking about the Washington Post's recent acquisition of a phone call between the SEC and players within the conference. In the final segment, we'll be covering the We Are United letter that was published by the Players' Tribune. Uh, by players of the Pac-12 basically setting an ultimatum for their participation in this 2020 college football season and talking a bit about the fallout that's already started around that. Before we get started, though, John, how are you doing this week? I'm doing doing okay, I suppose. Uh, You know, like Zach said, we had fully anticipated this being our big ACC preview, and we're excited to do that, but, you know... As everything in 2020, situations remain fluid and, you know, you have to be ready to adapt to change. And there was just too much going on in the college football world to worry about previewing a conference uh, with everything that we've seen go down this weekend. Yeah, I think it's really wise to touch on these things. We, we, to, to step over it would be to sacrifice our due diligence here. But before we get into these really juicy stories from the weekend and you know to have two of them fall on our lap in the same week in the off season is frankly crazy we're usually you know sifting the dregs for stories but they're throwing them at us in droves but before we get into you know these two big stories let's just look a bit at what's happening around the country we've already talked about the big big 10 and the Pac-12 going to their conference-only schedules. That happened earlier this month. Then we had the ACC come out and say that they're playing a no-division, 15-team, including Notre Dame, 10-game schedule plus one non-conference game. And the ACC basically did this so that they could maintain the four ACC-SEC in-state rivalry games, the Florida-Florida State, South Carolina-Clemson, Georgia Tech-Georgia, and Louisville-Kentucky. But then the SEC came in a few days later and basically said, thanks, but no thanks. We're just going to be playing our 10-game conference schedule, and, and you guys can figure out what the hell you're going to do with that now. Because the ACC put a lot of stipulations around this as well, where it had to be an in-state team or somebody coming in-state and had to meet basically the testing requirements and everything else around what ACC teams are doing. So things get a little dicey, and we'll talk about that more next week. But with everything that's just, you know, kind of fallen out this week, John... What conference do you think is in the best position to actually play football this fall? I don't know if any of them are in a great position with everything they've got going, but, you know, just from a national standpoint, when you look at the SEC, those games typically draw the biggest amount of fans. Um, uh, TV networks in the South in particular all over those games. So, you know, I think it's I think it's kind of petty that the SEC kind of circumvented the ACC like that. But to me, that's just the SEC wanting to maintain um, the facade of power that they feel like they have and want to make the decision for themselves and not allow another conference to say, this is how we're going to do things. Um, and I think eventually the ACC was probably going to arrive at that same point to where they were going to go conference-only schedule as well and forget about the non-conference games. And I think the SEC wanted to be the one who made that decision first just to just to be ahead of the game, I guess. So, 
you know, it sucks losing those in-state rivalries, but other than Louisville-Kentucky, the rest of the game would have probably been blowouts in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, it's not like we're losing a ton of really competitive matchups by any means. And honestly, I think the ACC did a smart thing by leaving that on the table and forcing the SEC's hand on it. Because, you know, any fan that gets mad about this and wants to go talk to their state representative or whatnot, they're going to be cursing out the SEC for this rather than the ACC now, you know. Um, The Atlantic Coast can point to the SEC and say, blame those guys rather than, you know, don't point the finger at us. We wanted to play them. And so I think it was a shrewd move on their part if, you know, a little bit short-sighted in the long run because now they've either got to try to fill those games or, you know, just nix it off their schedule. What do you think the ACC will be with that 11th game, John? I, my guess is that there won't be an 11th game. My guess is they're going to go conference only as well, just because every other conference is, you know, transitioning to that at this point. I can't imagine that there's really going to be many opportunities for out-of-conference games. Like, how many schools are going to be there other than, I guess, the independence of the world? Uh, obviously, Notre Dame's joining the ACC for the season to fill out their schedule, so you've still got, you know, BYU... New Mexico State, UMass, and the likes. But otherwise, you know, you probably can't get an 11th game for every school because I imagine that all the group of five schools are going to do the same, if not outright cancel some seasons in the group of five ranks. So I I just can't see it balancing that way for every school. So I think conference only for the ACC is probably the next logical step. Yeah, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I just, I don't see any utility in keeping that game. It's going to be more headaches to try to arrange one now at this point than than to just cut it aside. What's going on with the Big 12? What do you think they'll eventually do? Because they seem really hell-bent on playing a full slate of games. Yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine that they're going to be any different in the end. Um I think, especially with, you know, we lose, there were several big, Big 12 SEC games that we had briefly mentioned in the Big 12 preview that are now off the table. So, I mean, I think, again, unless maybe they can come up with some kind of partnership with the ACC to play uh, kind of a Big 12 ACC challenge of some way to get that extra game. I, you know, we see that in basketball every year. We kind of talked about that being possible and how fun that would be in college football as well to have that kind of scheduling flexibility every year. Uh, but I this probably isn't the best year to try something like that with all the unknowns and particularly with the with the travel it would take to get there. I guess West Virginia would be in pretty good shape if they had to go on the road and play an ACC team, but everyone else it would be probably logistically impossible. So I imagine the Big 12 will eventually do the same thing and maybe they're just like you were saying with the ACC, Zach, kind of waiting for everybody else to do it, and then they'll begrudgingly do it. Just be like, well, we tried. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're probably right in that regard. The The Big 12 starting to see its back against the wall, though. There's really no opportunity there to fill a lot of these slots. It'll be interesting, too, if they go to a conference-only schedule, because they already play around Robin with everybody in the conference. So... You know, they either have to schedule opponents twice for each team or, you know, just accept that they're playing one fewer game than every other league, which that's going to, you know, that'll be a hard pill to swallow for a league that's frankly, you know, been Oklahoma and the Nine Dwarves for a while now. Maybe they strike a deal with BYU or somebody like that, like... Uh, the ACC did with Notre Dame. Obviously, there was more precedent for that with Notre Dame's existing relationship with the ACC, but, I mean, that would be a way to get BYU a full schedule as well. Um, so that And they're, you know, close enough in that area to make it kind of feasible from a travel standpoint as well. So that could be an option to get that 10th game because everybody plays BYU. That would be interesting, yeah. The, you know, the only real question then is, what does BYU do with those six games they already have on the schedule? Um, none of which are Big 12 teams at this point. Uh, of course, we don't know what's happening with group of five leagues. So, you know, but they're playing 
three games against uh, Mountain West schools. They have Utah State, BYU, and San Diego State. They've got Houston out of the AAC. They've got Northern Illinois out of the MAC, and then they have North Alabama. You know, a, a one double A school or a, an FCS school now, if you will. So they would obviously be really happy to upgrade their schedule to a a Big Twelve schedule this season. I, you know, I think everybody in Provo would be stoked about that. Uh, it just really comes down to what would they have to spend to get out of playing those games they already have on the schedule. Yeah, it'd be all contingent, I think, on Group of Five leagues going to conference-only schedules as well, which is probably going to happen anyway. I know it's tougher for the Group of Five teams to make that call because they rely on the revenue they get from those out-of-conference games, particularly the road games. Um, but, you know, there's just slim pickings on being able to get those. And then North Alabama is an FCS institution. Chances are they're not even going to play football this year. Yeah, you know, that's the real question here. And one thing we've seen floated by, you know, several different pundits around around cyberspace has been this idea of the FCS and possibly even the group of five taking over the spring. You know, there's less of a risk of having as many players opt out to get ready for the draft and whatnot. So do you think it would be a wise decision for the group of five to start talking to networks and try to work collectively to shift the schedule and see if they can get more money out of that? Yeah, I think that would be a really forward-thinking move by the group of five, to be honest, at least for a one-year-only basis, because chances are that they're going to be more forgotten than normal because people tune into the group of five games when they have the opportunity to pull an upset over a power five opponent or a group of five team that's moved up in the standings um, and is playing for a shot at something bigger. So the opportunity to get that stage by themselves, because I mean, God, during the spring, especially when there's little programming for these networks and whatnot, with just college basketball kind of rolling through. I mean, imagine being able to watch the war on I-4, for instance, in April. Like, who wouldn't tune into that? I mean, I mean, you would, you and I would tune into that any time of the year, but, like, ratings would be, you would think, through the roof for spring, legitimate spring football. Uh, so I, I think that would be a brilliant idea. I think the, the group of five and or the FCS should seriously consider that because you've got to think there would be opportunities for big money, and that could be something that shifts the landscape entirely because it could be something that, states yeah you know it could be really beneficial long term to kind of take over that that space in the calendar that you know the only question is then do they ever get the chance to play power five teams again and you know with the power five this week also coming out and saying that they might host championships and olympic sports for the fall as well and sort of circumvent the ncaa it's we're starting to see a critical mass in that direction where these power five schools are starting to look for more autonomy and you, it it really feels like we're getting nearer and nearer a tipping point where they're finally going to break from the NCAA. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think those group of five schools and FCS schools need to be proactive about setting themselves up as well as possible when that happens, because Frankly, I don't think it's a matter of if. I think it's a matter of when at this point. I think the pandemic has really exposed priorities all around, if you will. Yeah, I think the process has been accelerated because of this. Because this is something we've talked about in the past, but it didn't feel like it was super close to coming to fruition. But now with the pandemic, I think the timeline's been moved up. I would honestly be surprised if we don't see something like that in the next decade. Yeah, we're getting nearer and nearer to that point. Anything else you want to say on the broad landscape before we take a quick break and dive a little bit deeper into the the first big story we're looking at out of the SEC, John? You know, no, I think we, we left in a pretty good spot to kind of segue into that. Um, you know, again, we just hope we have football in some form, and if we get football in the fall and the spring, that would be a nice surprise. I, I wouldn't argue. You know, it certainly means that we would have more interest in the sport longer, and that always works well for all of us. 
But with that said, let's take our first quick break, everybody. When we come back, we're going to be looking at that Washington Post expose from the SEC. So you will want to be sure to come back. Stay tuned. Welcome back after the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking now about the Washington Post's recent article that came out on Saturday, I believe it was. Yeah, August 1st. Kicked off the month with a bit of craziness. Uh, This was actually a phone call that the Washington Post obtained that was made last Wednesday. So right as we were releasing the the last podcast looking at the the Big Ten. Uh, The SEC was calling, uh, had a meeting with a dozen football players, uh, members of the conference's medical advisory board, and SEC officials up to and including the commissioner himself, Greg Sankey. The SEC set this up as what they they referred to as a quote-unquote confidential free exchange. Um, a way for medical advisors to hear questions from student-athletes and answer those questions. But as we saw from the recordings that came out, it it feels like the students were asking far better questions than the SEC could give them answers, John. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of been the case for every sport that's tried to get off the ground during the pandemic. It's been you know, kind of obvious where priorities have lied, have lied during this. And there's one big money quote in this, Zach, that I really wanted to just read. I've got it pulled up so I don't butcher it. And it was an SEC official that said, there are going to be outbreaks. We are going to have cases on every single team in the SEC. That's a given, and we can't prevent it. That's a direct quote from that Washington Post story um, from that phone call. And if that is a given, if outbreaks are a given, I, again, can't help but pose the question as to what, how is it possibly morally responsible to even play football in the fall? If we already know, sitting here right now at the beginning of August, that there's no way to play college football without outbreaks happening team by team. And the fact that the SEC and Presumably every other conference in the NCAA as a whole is cognizant of that fact. And yet we are still trying to go full steam ahead and put these kids at risk of getting sick, of then spreading that sickness all around their campuses, to their parents, to their friends, to their grandparents, and possibly making this pandemic even worse because of the hundreds of people that will be gathered together no matter what, no matter which way you slice it on these campuses for football games. So the fact that that was even acknowledged, because that's been the elephant in the room to me from the very beginning when we've been talking about the potential for a college football season. The elephant in the room has been that we know these kids are going to be exposed. These kids who are unpaid are going to be exposed for our entertainment to potentially getting COVID and It's, I just can't get past that when we talk about having a season. As much as I want to watch football, as much as I've enjoyed watching Major League Baseball back, even though it's not working particularly well through the pandemic, as much as I've enjoyed watching the bubble in the NBA the last week or so that it's been on, I mean, it's been great, but there's no bubble for college football. There's no way of making this happen without there being... COVID cases and outbreaks, and the SEC and every other member institution in the country is aware of that. Yeah, you know, I and thank you for for pulling out that quote. That was definitely one I wanted to get to because that last line in it, that last sentence, and we can't prevent it, you sure as hell can prevent it. There's a simple solution. Just don't play if you know you're putting unpaid 
athletes at risk, college kids at risk. You're putting undergraduates at risk and your few grad students on the team at risk, which means you're also putting your high-paid coaching staffs at risk. You're putting your administration that work in the same building at risk. You're putting the tutors that work with these kids at risk. You're putting everyone that they go to class with at risk. And they, in turn, are at risk from all of these individuals as well. There's a simple solution. You go remote for the term, and you reassess for spring, and you don't bring these kids back, and you don't play a season. That's how you prevent it. You don't have an outbreak if you're not having the football team there. It, it, it's that simple. It, it, you know, it sounds really elementary, but that's something the SEC is glossing over because come hell or high water, they are intent on having a season, like we mentioned in the last segment. This is, if any league is going to push on, it sure as hell feels like the SEC, especially after this call. Yeah, and I mean, they, they're saying what every other league knows and feels too like this is the prevailing sentiment around the country and it just so happens too that in the sec you're in just like you know we talked about last week um they're the epicenter for covid right now like the the league is playing in states like florida like alabama like georgia where the coronavirus is just going crazy right now and there's no way that it's going to change that significantly even with most states now finally adopting a mandatory mask ordinance it's not going to be gone in a month you're going to have people who are already getting frustrated i I mean i live in the state of alabama myself and there's already people that we've had this mask ordinance for two weeks and they haven't seen a major decline in the coronavirus yet so obviously to them it's not working you know that's the prevailing sentiment unfortunately for a lot of people and it's going to continue to be bucked against and what's going to end up happening is that it's going to be just as bad maybe a little bit better in the next month hopefully but not enough that we've earned the right to be able to watch sports because that's the thing sports are a privilege like 100 they're a privilege i forget which athlete it was who recently said it. i believe it was a major league baseball player i can't remember exactly but he said sports are a reward for a functioning society and we are not a functioning society in any definition of the term at this point we don't deserve college football we had our chance to earn a college football season five months ago when all of this first started really happening and we could have done whatever it took to make sure that by the time we hit august that we weren't still dealing with it it's worse now than it ever has been We are nowhere closer to being out of this than we ever have been. And we are going to see, because money talks, and that's what matters the most to these colleges and institutions. Anyone who's ever gone to college knows that the thing they care about the most is the money they generate. Not just football programs, but the college as a whole love that tuition money and all that that they get. And college football is a big business. It makes a lot of money for the conferences for the individual institutions it's the lifeline for a lot of people but at what cost are we willing to play that sport and right now that cost obvious to everyone including the sec official on the call who said it is that we're going to have outbreaks exactly there Another quote I want to bring up that I think was really great, and one thing I want to acknowledge more than anything is these players were asking better questions than a lot of journalists have asked of of Greg Sankey and the rest of these guys in any of these conferences. The players know what the hell they're doing and what the hell they want from this. And, you know, one of them came up in, in, in the call and said, quote, for so much unknown in the air right now, is it worth having a football season without certainty? And Greg Sankey came and responded to this quote, part of our work is to bring as much certainty in the midst of this really strange time as we can so you can play football in the most healthy way possible with the understanding there aren't any guarantees in life, end quote. Of course there aren't guarantees in life. 
these players understand when they go out there, they're a torn ACL from their dream. You know, a concussion can ruin their lives. They get these risks that are there, but they're taking extraordinary risks in extraordinary times. And I think it's completely fair for this player on the call to ask, you know, the only certainty that the SEC seems to be able to say is that we're going to have outbreaks and it's going to happen on every team and there's no way we can prevent it if we're playing football. But, you know, I, I, I think the fact here is, is this conference is just being so callous and, and I don't just want to put this on the SEC either because that's just the phone call that we were, you know, that the Washington Post was able to obtain. I wouldn't be shocked if these same phone calls have happened with representatives from every one of these conferences. But, you know, I think the other thing that's there for these students, and, and they are students, and they are athletes, you know, these are laborers who happen to also be studying on campus. I don't, they're, you know, one is a requirement of the other, but these are exceptional circumstances and frankly these are players who have exceptional circumstances all the time their lives are not the average college student's life but you know Momo Sanogo uh, linebacker from Ole Miss came on the call and you know asked why their school was planning to bring thousands of students back to campus and you know he has four classes a week, he said, and he fears that his classmates are going to be idiots. Frankly, he can count on some of those classmates and those classes to be idiots. They'll be going to bars. They'll be going to parties. They'll be making irresponsible decisions because that's what college students do when they're together. It, I made those irresponsible decisions when I was a college student. Um, at least that first year when I was younger, before I came back at 29. And even then, I made stupid decisions as a college student, you know? You're in the midst of learning. But, you know, the officials acknowledged that if students don't come back, the optics of having a football season are, are terrible. So they have to bring students back. But in bringing students back, they're putting these players at increased risk. And that's something that they can't mitigate for. You know, I mean, the only thing that they could possibly do is allow these these football players to schedule only online classes a la, you know, Joe Burrow. That's a really fascinating point, too. Like you said, the old Miss player was, you know, it's a catch-22, right? Like you're talking about... It's obviously it looks bad if you have football without kids on campus, but it makes it that much harder to have football if you have a full campus. So, and he's not just, he's talking about all the other classmates, but it's people on his team too. Like these are, these are, like you said, these are still college age kids who are going, just because they play football doesn't mean they're going to follow the strict set of rules. And I'm sure there's going to be strict sets of rules by every coach in the country to try to prevent their players from getting COVID during the fall, but they're not going to listen to them. Like, they're still going to want to go out and go to bars and party and go hook up with girls and stuff like that. That's just a part of the college life. That's what they're going to do, and it's going to be an unmitigated disaster in the fall when we actually attempt this. I mean, look at Major League Baseball. I keep coming back to that point. And I want to attribute that quote earlier to correctly. That was Sean Doolittle, the national closer, who talked about sports being the reward for a functioning society. So I want to make sure I attribute that correctly. But look at how disastrous the Major League Baseball season is going. You know, we record this a couple days early before it's released. It wouldn't surprise me if the season is put to a halt by the time this podcast is released. Because there was a, a story that popped up um, late, I believe it was Saturday night, from Keith Oberman from ESPN, who said that he had heard that um, Major League Baseball had reached out to TV executives to tell them they need to search for alternate programming as early as Monday for, you know, potential shutdown of the league because you've got outbreaks for the Marlins, the Phillies, the Cardinals. I mean, that's just, and these are, this is 30 teams. They all have, I think, roster sizes of 30 currently and then some satellite rosters and whatnot. Now, multiply that times you know, three at least to get to 90 
or so for most of these colleges. On average, a college football team at the FBS level, at the Power 5 level, has 130 players on their roster. There you go. So multiply it times four to get close to that number of players. And like you said, that's not including the staff, the support staff, the trainers, the uh, equipment managers, and all of that that it takes to make college football work, to make one single college football game work. You're bringing 200 to 300 people together. And there's no social distancing. In baseball, at least, you can kind of still play the game and social distance a little bit. You don't have to be right up on top of people to play baseball. Football is a collision sport. You're supposed to go face-to-face. You're supposed to collide into one another. There's no way. I know they're developing mass guards and stuff like that, but even that has its own set of issues. There were several LSU players who said that they were unbelievably uncomfortable to wear the mass guards on the helmets that they're trying to put forth for this season. So I just can't see how it works. Kudos to the SEC for having this open dialogue with their players, but also they should have been ready to give them some answers better than what they were providing on that call. You know, it's one of those things where they they gave the answers that they could. And, you know, Sonogo, who I was talking about earlier, he, you know, he's he, he kept pushing. You know, basically the administration's advice to them was be a role model to the other students. You know, encourage others to act more responsibly and not put yourself in those kinds of situations. Uh, he, sure that's great but you know what that's a conference and member schools abdicating responsibility and these same schools are going to be happy to try to sign a liability waiver for these guys we've seen it happen around the country already at multiple schools where they're basically saying come back play for us if something happens to you it's not our fault it sure as hell is your fault because you know there is a solution to prevent outbreaks from happening, and it's not playing the fucking game. Pardon my language, but that just needs to be said. And, you know, uh, Keith McGee, uh, linebacker from Texas A&M, he comes on and, you know, he thanks these guys for answering the questions the best they can, but he comes right out and says, quote, it's just kind of not good enough, end quote. You know, these guys want to play football. They want to return. But with these uncer- with this uncertainty, like, what is, what is to keep more of these players from just opting out of the season? Honestly, it would probably be the smartest thing for their health. And, you know, we've already seen several players do that, starting with Rayvon Bonner, the, you know, reserve running back at Illinois. He pulled himself out. And, you know, that wasn't much of a story. But then you have Caleb Farley, the standout cornerback at at, uh, Virginia Tech, says, no thanks, no thanks. You know, he's a first-round projection. And, you know, he lost his mother to breast cancer. He can't stomach losing another family member, he said. I'm not going to do this. I I need to look out for myself and my family. And, honestly, that's the most sober, level-headed approach to this you could possibly have and the fact that it's coming from a college kid rather than a conference commissioner or a school administrator is sickening i'm just gonna say that it's sickening and i'm dealing with that myself as somebody who's about to go on to campus later this month here at penn state and it's wondering myself, what are they really doing to protect us there? It's not just the football players, because you have an entire campus of tens of thousands of people who they have nebulous answers for. And, you know, if, if they're giving these kind of answers to the football players who are their money, you know, they're their breadwinners. If they're giving these kind of wishy-washy, half-ass answers to them, just imagine what every university that's having to give those same answers is giving to their undergrads that are coming there. They're giving to the grad students that have to come and work face-to-face classes and lead discussion sections in tiny rooms. It, it, it It's disgusting all around.
Yeah, there's no safety protocol that is going to make this season work, I don't think. Not with the amount of people you have to bring together, not with the kind of sport football is. And speaking of the the waivers that a lot of these institutions are having their players sign, every single player should do like Pink did in Days and Confused, ball that up and throw it right back at their coach. There is no way in hell any of them should ever sign anything like that. You're damn right about that, and I love the reference. That's beautiful. On that note, everybody, I think that's the perfect ending to this segment here. That's exactly what each of these players should do when asked to be put in this situation. When we come back from our break, we'll be talking about some players that are effectively doing just that. We'll, of course, be talking about the Pac-12 players initiative around We Are United. So stay tuned for that. We will be right back. Welcome back for our final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've taken a brief intermission, if you will, from our 2020 conference previews leading up to the 2020 season because we have some news that we've been talking about. Last segment, we talked about the Washington Post's story uh, relating to the SEC's phone call with players that came out this this past weekend. And now we need to talk about the We Are United letter that was published by the Players' Tribune on Sunday, August 2nd, by players of the Pac-12. And, you know, this letter, I mean, this is first and foremost players showing that they're not going to be taken lightly anymore. And, you know, we've talked about this in previous podcasts in terms of players having agency, we talked about it around UCLA and some of the things that have gone on around the Black Lives Matter movement and the move uh, in the wake of George Floyd's death around, um, you know, scaling back policing and making policing more just in the United States. But now we have players across schools standing up for one another in a way that is, frankly, amazing. You know, I was talking with some fellow sport history scholars about this this weekend, and this is probably the biggest movement that we've seen since Harry Edwards led the Olympic protest movement at the 1968 Olympics that ultimately led to Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their gloved fists on the medal stand. And... It's huge. We'll walk through this in a second, just kind of looking at their demands and going through them. But when you read this at first, John, what was your first reaction? Honestly, pride, I think I would say would be the term that I use just from a standpoint of it's we've talked about it a lot this year and how much power these athletes wield that I don't think they've known that they've wielded for so long and they're figuring that out. So I, you know, I felt the sense of pride to see athletes come together and make a list of demands that, you know, probably aren't realistic completely in that, but are completely fair to ask for in what, especially with everything going on, and the risk that they're being asked to undertake. We talked about it a lot last segment. They're being asked to risk their health, you know, in the short term and the long term. That's the thing about COVID. No one knows how it's going to affect you long term. You know, you might shake it off in a couple of weeks and you might have long-term issues because of it. Who knows? And as an athlete, having long-term issues to your lungs can be it for you. I mean, that could completely derail your entire career. So, I was, I felt a sense of pride, Zach, honestly. Yeah, so did I. And, you know, I mean, not just the respiratory issues, but we're seeing more issues around stroke, around heart, you know, complications. 
there's a lot that we still don't know about this, but everything we're finding out more and more, none of it is good. You're not going to have good outcomes from this to your body. You know, contracting COVID-19 does nothing good to you. This isn't, this isn't rainbows and lollipops. And, you know, I think these players, what's amazing about it, they lead off to ensure future generations of college athletes will be treated fairly. We are united. They're looking far beyond themselves because these players have a lot to lose. You know, these players who may or may not, you know, might very well sit out the season. And that's exactly what this is. This is an ultimatum before they play. This must be met. They're, you know, they're sacrificing to make sure that players after them have more rights and understand the value of speaking up for those rights. Uh, so, yeah, immense pride from me as well. And it could come with real repercussions. As we've seen, uh, by Sunday night, it, you know, there were reports that Washington State had already kicked five players off their team who were signees to this letter. There are real repercussions here, but, you know, you're going to be sacrificing something one way or another as a player in this instance. Because, as we said, you could be sacrificing your long-term health, or you could be sacrificing a career you've been working for, for, you know, since you were, you know, yay high. It, 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 there are real risks here all around, but the players are taking agency for themselves, and... Frankly, I hope that, you know, more players from other conferences step up as well. That's the way that this would really have legs, I think, is if every other conference re players release something similar to this, a list of demands, maybe they go John Locke and nail them on the commissioner office's door, I don't know, like that would be, or not John Locke, Martin Luther, excuse me, and nail them on the commissioner office's door. Um, or whatever. So, you know, that's how I think this has legs. I, you know, you brought up the Washington State thing, and if that's your initial response as a coach or an administrator to this list of demands that Pac-12 athletes uh, brought out, your initial response isn't to sit down and have a legitimate conversation about this. It's to boot them off the team. You're an absolute joke. Like, I lost every bit of respect I've ever developed um, for Nick Rolovich, and we've both been fans of his while he was at Hawaii. We were excited about his opportunity at Washington State. I've got nothing left for the guy. I just don't understand how that's your initial response is to boot kids off a football team because of this list that they came out with instead of sitting down and having a legitimate discussion and trying to come up with a workable solution for both sides. Well, that's the thing, is this list, you know, they put out a 17-point list of demands. You know, this unity demand to protect and benefit both scholarship and walk-on athletes in the conference. A list of demands like that is the starting point of a negotiation. Or, right. a, or at least it should be, you know, and they let off with some big asks. Fully, I'm sure, expecting that these would be talked down. But, you know, they came with 17 of them because they, they really had 10 that were probably non-negotiable and seven others that are leverage. And, you know, Washington State in that regard, they completely burned any goodwill that they might have moving forward. You completely torpedoed recruiting for at least the next decade at your school by doing that, and not just in football. You ruined it in basketball, men's and women's. You ruined it in your Olympic sports. You ruined it in soccer. You ruined it in baseball. You ruined it all over the damn place. So, way to go, Cougars. You know, you, you were doing well there at the end of the Mike Leach era, but you just cooped it up again. Way to go. Absolutely. I mean, there's no way if I was a prospective parent of a student athlete that I would want to send my kid to play for a program that obviously disregards the health and well-being of their players that um, that quickly, especially. And it's a shame because there are great professors at Washington State that these students could learn from. I mean, just look at last week's podcast when we had Scott Jedlicka on talking to us. 
he's a professor of sports management there at Washington State. And frankly, you're compromising guys like that when you make moves like this, too. That's just pathetic. So, I, I, I as a full disclosure, as an Oregon fan, I'm not going to cry for Washington State in that regard if they have completely ruined their, their recruiting for the next decade. But for the sake of the kids who do end up there, I'm sorry. Like, I understand that options are options, and if that's your only opportunity to play at a Power 5 level versus going to a different Group of 5 school or whatnot, you take what you do. But it's, it, you know, that's all they're going to be getting at this point are kids desperate to play at the Power 5 level with no other options on the table at that in that regard. And that's not a good place to be in and it's completely self-sabotaging i agree um did you want to go down the list and kind of highlight some of the some of the demands yeah you know let's do that right now i think that's a great place to kind of turn to at this moment because these demands frankly i i i don't think they're asking for a lot considering what's actually why schools are bringing back football and trying to make it happen. You know, their first prong, with, you know, they had three asks underneath health and safety protections. You know, allowing the option not to play during the pandemic without losing athletics eligibility or a spot on our team's roster. Completely reasonable in my, in my mind. They also said, you know, prohibit and or void any COVID-19 agreements that waive liability. Again, can, there should be no way that the school was absolved of any liability if they bring these kids back, in my mind. No, absolutely. There's nothing on this first list that should even really be debatable. Like, all of it is, like, the bare minimum asking to make any kind of season work, right? Like, these are the bare minimum... Um, issues that schools need to address and i love that they put in voiding the COVID 19 agreements that waive liability because yeah i mean if you're gonna force these kids to come to school and they're gonna have to play you know you should absolutely be held liable if something goes wrong and they should absolutely retain eligibility we talked about this a few weeks back they should absolutely retain eligibility if they choose to set the season out undoubtedly and the last part of that first, you know, uh, plank of, of requests or demands, rather, is, you know, third-party enforced health and safety standards that are approved by the players to address their concerns around COVID-19 and the injuries, abuses, and deaths that can come out of that and out of their everyday participation in this sport that's just looking out for themselves short term and long term but the other you know the second part i found really fascinating this is the part one of the parts i loved most is they're looking out for more than just football in this regard you know these they're the second part of, of, of their their demands is titled Protect All Sports. They want, you know, endowment funds to be used to preserve sports. One of their examples is Stanford just cut a bunch of sports from their, their athletic department. And their example is saying, in extraordinary time, you draw on that extraordinary endowment that you have. Stanford has a $27.7 billion endowment, and they're cutting multiple sports from their athletic department because of COVID-19, apparently. Or that's at least their excuse that they use for something they probably wanted to do long before. But, right. you know, these students came out and said, no, you know, we demand that you preserve the sports and if you're really talking about this being a learning opportunity you make as many learning opportunities as possible you cut you know facility expenditures stop wasting money on water slides and lavish locker rooms and updating those locker rooms every three to five years 
you cut performance and academic bonuses from coaches because, frankly, that leads to abuses by coaches. That leads to coaches steering students toward, you know, majors where they have the easiest way of maintaining good GPAs and being able to put most of their focus on the football field so then they earn those performance bonuses too. And they also called for Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12, administrators both within the Pac-12 and at member schools, and the coaches on down to voluntarily and drastically reduce excessive pay. You know, I was thinking about it in the last segment even. You have 14 schools in the SEC, you have 12 in the Pac-12. If you're looking to give players some incentive to come back, Imagine each one of these coaches shaving a mi- just $1 million off of their salary. For some of these guys, like a Nick Saban, for instance, that's like 12% of his annual salary from the university. It's not a huge ask. It, it, faculty around the country are being asked to shave at least that much off their salaries right now. Coaches can better afford to do that. Yeah, you know, Greg Sankey makes $2.5 million. I think Larry Scott is somewhere like two point, it, it, it's somewhere around $2 million. These guys can afford to shave off some, some money. So if you had that happen, if you had the commissioner and every coach in the conference do that, you could hand out like $7,500 to the, each one of those football players to get them to come back. Yeah, and there's excess money sitting around all the time. I when all of this, when the Pac-12 letter first came out, and one of the more interesting tweets I saw was from Michael Felder, who's at In the Bleachers on Twitter. Uh, he's a former college athlete himself. He said the goal of the facility wars in college football are three pronged. They're one, keep athletes at the facility for as long as possible. Two, show off the help in recruiting, and three, spend the money. Yep, spend the money they have in excess all the time. They want to, you know, they have money sitting around all the time like that, so they build lavish, you know, recruiting centers and weight rooms and have state-of-the-art everything in the facilities and everything because they have all this excess money that they don't know what to do with. And the obvious answer to what to do with that money is to set some of it aside for the players instead of building new facilities every five to ten years. Those facilities will last longer than that. It's okay. You can give some of that money to the players where it should go rather than constantly spending it on pointless upgrades. Yeah, you ask a player if they want a water slide or a check, I bet 100 out of 100 answer they'd prefer a check. <laughs> but, you know, the students it, signing this letter also thought far beyond themselves. You know, they looked at what's going on around the country with protests still ongoing around the country and one of their problems was about racial injustice you know forming a permanent civic engagement task force made up of leaders experts of those players choice and university and conference administrators to address some of these issues dealing with racial injustice both within their sport within the broader campus and across society you know they asked for the pac-12 to, you know, partner with their schools to distribute 2% of conference revenue to direct toward financial aid for low-income black students, for community initiatives, for development programs for college athletes on these campuses. They, you know, one of their demands are to form a Pac-12 College Athlete Summit, a black, excuse me, a Pac-12 Black College Athlete Summit with guaranteed representation of at least three athletes from each school of those players' choice, where they get to choose who represents them. None of these are radical requests, I think. No, and what struck me the most is when you look at those first, you know, three Roman numerals, is they're all selfless acts. You know, they're asking for stuff that really doesn't even immediately affect them. It affects other sports, it affects, you know, other students who are going to school with them, and it affects future players and stuff a lot more than it'll ever affect them. So that's what, you know, that's where that sense of pride comes from as well, is seeing 
how selfless these Pac-12 athletes who signed this letter um, were with what they were asking for. Exactly. You know, these aren't ridiculous. I, none of these first things we've talked about are in any way ridiculous demands. Of course, we look at that fourth prong, and this is where people start speaking up and saying, this is crazy, this can't be done, no way this is ever going to happen. Frankly, you need to think more creatively if you think this could never possibly happen. Because what they're asking for, their first ask in economic freedom and equity was not show me the money. It was medical insurance. So, you know, the players having the opportunity to select medical insurance for sports-related medical conditions, including anything that could be long-term from COVID-19, to cover six years after their eligibility ends. That's just responsible on their part. They're coming into an extraordinary circumstance where we still don't know the long-term impacts that could happen to them, and they want to cover their ass. That's just smart on my mind. Right, and, you know, you have injuries and stuff that happen to college athletes that fester and require attention for years after their careers are over. And that's what also, when you're not even talking from a COVID-centric standpoint, it's also important to have that for the next few years after you're gone because a lot of these kids aren't going to the NFL. A lot of them are done with football as soon as their college eligibility is exhausted. So having that, you know, health insurance like that for the next several years after they graduate or after they leave um, school is important, particularly when you have underlying issues and stuff that have come up because you were a football player. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is they're not asking this for just now. This is a long-term, like, let's radically rethink how we do this. And, again, that's a very selfless thing to ask. Let's make sure that people are safe long-term if you're going to be throwing their bodies out there for your edification and profit. And then they, you know, they do go into some demands about money. First of all, stop messing around with name, image, and likeness rights. We've seen the NCAA going to Congress and begging for carte blanche and how they decide how this goes, just like they got in 1984 when, you know, Byron White put that little clause in in their, um, you know, dissent of the Supreme Court decision in Oklahoma versus the NCAA that basically said the NCAA gets to decide in perpetuity what amateurism is. They're saying, you know... Stop that. And that's that's common sense. Give people their rights to their own damn name, image, and likeness. That's fair. Where it gets interesting, you know, I think even under the fair market pay rights and freedoms, most of these things people wouldn't object to. Six-year athletic scholarship to foster undergrad and graduate degree completion. Awesome. If we're talking about these people being first and foremost students, you shouldn't blink at that. Talking about elimination of policies and practices restricting or deterring freedom of speech. I've heard plenty of people going off on Twitter about, you already have freedom of speech from the government. They're negotiating for it from their schools, which more often than not are state schools. The only school that's private You know, the only schools that are private in the Pac-12 are Stanford and USC. Every other one of these schools is a state school. So their coaches restricting their speech is the government restricting their speech when you get down to it. You know, we think about, you know, we haven't necessarily heard in the Pac-12 specific instances, but I think about the story about Iowa where players were allowed to tweet once a month and it had to be approved by the administration, you know, by the the staff, that's a restriction of speech. And they're saying, stop messing with that. They ask for the ability for players of all sports to transfer one time without punishment, and additionally, in cases of abuse or serious negligence. That makes sense. Players choose the wrong schools all the time, just like students do across the board. I went to three different schools for my undergrad 
I transferred each time without any penalty. My credits transferred over. I was able to get new grants, whatever. You know, the and you know, due process. Everyone should have due process. There should be no objection about that. And I think even this idea of the ability to complete their eligibility after participating in a pro draft, you know, this idea that you can test out the waters around the pros, but come back within seven days of the draft if you decide I'm not going to sign an, an undrafted free agent contract. That just makes sense if you're calling these people students. Yeah, I mean, it works for baseball. You know, plenty of baseball players get drafted and choose to go back to school or they draft out of high school and choose to go to college instead. And that works out just fine. So there's no reason we couldn't have that as well. And, I mean, we've talked about... The same thing happens in hockey. Yeah. Right. We've talked about the the transfer as well being acceptable. There's no reason, at least, in the very least, everyone should get a free one-time transfer. In the very least, I think that's the bare minimum. But I think the big one that everyone's latched on to, Zach, is the is the first bullet point there that's distribute 50% of each sport's total conference revenue evenly among athletes and their respective sports. That's the one that everyone comes to. But what I find really interesting to me is I don't think these the things they're asking for were in a random order. I feel like they put their priorities at the top. Yep. And at the bottom, they started putting stuff in that they would like to have, but I'm betting you that they would back off of if they got some of the other stuff approved. Like, obviously, 50% of the revenue is a big ask for the players and whatnot. Not that I'm totally against it or anything like that. I don't find that it's particularly realistic within our current framework, particularly unless you had mass walkouts. And we've already seen players like uh, South Carolina transfer Jake Bentley at Utah saying he's playing this season no matter what. It's his last chance to play, and he's playing. So you've already got several players who are going to jump that picket line and not, you know, have a mass sit out. But like I said, I don't think these were random in order. I think they put their priorities in the front. And like you said, this is the beginning of a negotiation. This is the Pac-12, its member institutions should come together, sit down with these players, and negotiate this stuff. They're not going to stick firm on everything they're asking for they will settle for somewhere in the middle of a lot of these points and a lot of them like we've already gone over shouldn't even really be a debate they're just common sense requests that should be basically automatically approved i mean there's there's no reason some of these some of these should have been in practice from forever really like some of them are just so obvious that it's embarrassing that it took a college student to point it out to us. Why are coaches getting academic bonuses? Why are coaches getting performance bonuses on something that's oftentimes out of their power? Why are students not allowed to, to speak their minds freely? Why can't you transfer to another school? So much of this is just common sense, and it's something that every other student on campus has the right to. That's what we need to acknowledge. If you're trying to say that these are students first and foremost, treat them like every other student and give them the rights that every other student has. That's not a ridiculous ask. Of course, the sticking point is going to be that 50% of total conference revenue. It's not a ridiculous ask in my mind, but that's the point that they're going to be more than willing to negotiate down, I think. Even, Even then, you know, like I said, you shave even just a million dollars off each coach's salary this year, off each head coach's salary, and shave a million off Larry Scott's salary as commissioner. And you could pay out at least as much as I get as a grad student as a stipend to, to run classes as a teaching assistant. And that seems completely fair to me as, as somebody, you know, if you're a campus worker, get money as a campus worker. That's not a huge ask in my mind. Maybe it's not 50% in the end, but they sure as hell ought to get something. No, yeah, I agree completely. I think, I mean, in any negotiation, if you've ever had a job interview and they ask you for uh, what you're looking for in terms of a salary, you're not going to shoot low. 
you're gonna shoot high. You're gonna throw out a number that might even sound ridiculous to the person you're asking it to, but you want to set the bar up there and let them meet you somewhere in the middle. You don't want to lowball yourself, and they're not gonna lowball themselves in this letter either. Exactly. This is just good negotiating tactics, and frankly, I think a lot of adults could learn from this. And, you know, as I said at the beginning of this segment, I hope more athletes from more conferences join on in this initiative. Because while we've seen that there are real risks, as happened at Washington State, there are also real rewards that can happen long term. These players have the ability, you know, the chance right now to be collectively the Kurt Flood of their generation. And that's nothing to scoff at. No, I mean, we're, the eyes of the world now are on the Pac-12. And like I said at the beginning, just super proud to, to have been able to see that. And I would love to see other leaders of other conferences come out and do the same thing. I mean, the SEC, we just saw that phone call release. They didn't get any kind of acceptable answer. So now would be a great time to fire something back at the conference as a whole, uh, a list of demands like that. So I would love this. The next time we're on, we're talking about the other four conferences or the other four power five conferences that have also released the set of demands on their own. It would be absolutely beautiful. Well, I think that's the perfect place to leave this week's episode. Everybody. All I'm going to say from here is please make sure that you're continuing to wear masks. Stay at home as much as possible. If you're out in public, remain at least six feet away from people as much as you can. Let's tamp this shit down and get back to stadiums when we can. But let's not do it until we're safe and until those players we just talked about are safe. So thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back with you next Wednesday with the ACC preview you expected this week. Thank you for your patience and understanding, and we're so glad to have you here.